Lisa Beyer, and welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. Today, we are going to be talking about branding, and I believe that this is going to be one of the first uh, interviews that I've done on the topic of branding, and especially branding when it comes to public relations. When I first started my PR agency about 20 years ago, my partner was a commercial artist. So we blended in the art and the science of public relations and creativity. Fast forward to today, everything is digital and visual means a lot. So I take special interest in visuals and branding when it comes to the clients at the buyer group and our public relations strategies. Today's guest is Eric Kiker. Eric and I met in the Baby Bathwater Mastermind, and we are surrounded by the most successful entrepreneurs. Eric is a branding expert. And he is going to share with us the exact process that he takes when he comes into a company and helps them either brand or rebrand and some of the steps and the ideas that you should take into consideration when it comes to 2021 and what does your brand mean to your audience. Let's welcome Eric. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. I'm here with Eric Piker. Hey, Eric, how are you? Hi. Hey, Lisa, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm excited because I think this is, we've, we've now recorded more than 100 episodes as of about a month ago of Social wow. PR Secrets. Congrats. And I think this is one of our first um, episodes that we're going to be talking about branding. And I love branding. We were just talking before we started recording about how my first agency that I own, my partner was a creative direct, was the creative director. And we sold ourselves as a PR agency, but we also provided creative services on the back end so that we could help our clients look better. And that helped us with the public relations. I mean, I started, I started as a freelancer because I didn't take a traditional sort of route to getting into what I got into. It sort of like fell into it accidentally. And so I had to sort of get my own clients and I started as a freelancer, but then after about three or four years, I got the attention of this agency that was the largest agency in Denver at the time, largest agency in the Rocky Mountain region, largest privately owned ad agency in the Rocky Mountain region. Um, and we had, uh, we had a media department and we had a creative department. And you would think that these two departments would talk to each other, but they didn't. The creatives would go off and they would do their thing and the media people would go off and do their thing. And then you would get into the meeting where you presented the creative and the media people said, well, we're not buying TV. Why are you presenting TV? And it was just like, it took a while sort of like for the powers that be at that agency to figure out that these guys ought to be getting together in the beginning. So I love it that you that you didn't stay in your lane. You were like, we're yeah. PR, but, but, but why does PR just have to be like what you expect? Why can't there be a visual element to PR? Exactly. And, and it's funny because you were saying you're, you know, you were a copywriter, you still are a copywriter, but all the things that you can do with your copywriting, when you can add some visuals to that, make all the difference in the world. I had a guy one time, again, when I was freelancing, this was my second stint of freelancing and I was working for an agency and the guy who was directing me was like, I think he was an associate creative director. And, and I, I called him up when I was ready to present my work. And I said, hey, I've got a, I've got a bunch of headlines and I've gone ahead and put visuals with them. Uh, just so we can, we can see if it's any good. And, and he said, you just stick to the words. We'll take care of the bit. And I was like, what? I mean, if somebody wants okay. to get an idea, you know, take it. Unless you're, unless you, maybe you're protecting your territory. But, but I think when we're working for clients, 
it behooves all of us, especially now. I mean, it's not just COVID where we're all working independently, but it's this whole world of marketing now where they're just, it's, it's like cable television, how that exploded the choices. Well, what we have at our disposal now because of the internet and digital marketing, it just exploded all of the options for marketing to people. And nobody truly is capable of dealing with all of that stuff. I think it gets to the sort of like the full service ad agency versus like the specialist, you yeah. know? It's like when you yeah. go with and specialists, you kind of feel like maybe you're getting the best of, of every possible world, but, but only if all of those specialists can get together in the sandbox and play together. Collaboration is key, especially yeah. today. Yes. Um, I so I love the story that you shared with me just about how you got into, you went from copywriting to, to dipping your toes and now, now more than dipping your toes into branding and share that story about the meetings you would sit at. Oh, sure. Okay. So for, well, first of all, I have to give you my definition of branding. Oh yeah. Everybody's got a different, you know, some people think branding is a logo. Some people think branding is something else. I think of branding as, well, what I do with, with, I think of it more as like message development is the fur. I think it's the first thing. I mean, it's like that, you know, when, when, when you're, when your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Well, my tool is language. And so the nail is always looks like it needs what I do. But I think before you can start to create colors and visuals and sort of like a, a, that verb or that visual vocabulary, you need to create the actual vocabulary because we spend more time talking than we do looking at pictures. So at the time I was a copywriter and I would, I would get invited to these. One of the very first ones I did was for Naked Juice and, um, it was way, way back. That's awesome. And they had hired this branding agency to come in and lead a messaging development workshop with a bunch of the Naked Juice people and a few of us creative people. Um, and I was lucky to get invited to that when I was back when I was a freelancer, stint, uh, freelance stint number two of three. And these, you know, I just noticed that these, that these folks were more, uh, the people that were the leading, the moderator was a more of a consultant and they would put slinkies on the table and they would tell these brand managers and these business type people to be creative. I want you to be creative for the next eight hours. And you could just see the, the sort of like the, the air go out of these people's balloon because they, are, they don't think that way. They don't work that way and you can't just turn that thing on. And so we would go through the eight hours and we would go into breakout groups and we would create all this stuff and um, they would whiteboard everything. And then a couple of weeks later, they would come back with a deck. It was actually way more than a couple of weeks later, but they would come back with a deck that was, you know, two inches thick, 200 pages. And it looked and felt and read like a textbook. And then it was up to people like me to sort of like translate this into a big idea. And I was like, well, maybe I could shortcut all of that because I know how to come up with ideas. I like being in front of people which is a crucial part. And, and I'm, you know, I'm mouthy. Uh, so I developed my own methodology for doing what these consultant folks were doing. And I call it now, I call it differentiatable. And it is Zoom workshops, of course, with our current situation, but I break them up over a couple of days. And we make a stream of consciousness lists. We ask provocative questions. Like one of my favorites is, what gives us the audacity to think we can win? 
And another one of my favorites is what do we want for our consumers? Because I always say, like, if you want to put a fist in the, you want to put a fist in the air on the behalf of your consumer, if you want to win. Less we language, more you language, more like, what is this really going to do to help a problem in your life? Not just, you know, the, the, the functional attributes of the brand or the product, but what is it on a, from an emotional perspective? And, and we know brands that have done a beautiful job of of creating that kind of, a, of, a, of an attraction for consumers. So that's what I do. We, we, um, we, we're hard on ourselves. We make sure that we don't drink any of our own Kool-Aid. Uh, we wanna make, we wanna think like skeptics. That's one of the only two rules is that we think like skeptical consumers because consumers don't care about us. They got their lives. You know, they're not waiting for our next ad or our next press release or whatever. Um, and the other, the other thing that we force is we force agreement. So everybody has to agree to every syllable that I write up on the great big post-it notes on the wall in my dining room now because of COVID. <laughs> and if we do that, then we've got data at the end of the six to eight hours of workshopping and, and we can go off and we can make messaging around that that's very consumer direct, that it's in many cases cut and paste so that when they get this output of mine, they're not, it's, it's headlines and stories. It's an executive and, summary of headline, yeah, messages. It, you could just start. You could just start using it tomorrow. Once we arrive at the the final revised version. So anyway, that's that's kind of what I do and and how I got into it. And I want it to be actionable for people. Yeah, and I think being a copywriter, it's so you're so relatable to what the what the net net the bottom line really needs to be to be successful. And it's not a lot of fluff. It's just you're zeroing in on what needs to get done and actually probably making the jobs easier for marketers once they get your, your deliverable. Your, right. Yeah. My dad. Right. Yeah. That's what I hope uh, is that you could just hand this off to somebody who wasn't even in the room, who's going to go create social posts or digital ads or a website or whatever. And they can just go, Oh, after an hour of reading this thing, they can go, this is what I need for this. I might rewrite it a little bit to suit my purpose but I'm going to stick in this ballpark of like, because we cover tone, we cover what is the purpose of the brand and what is, it's different than like a mission, vision, values thing that, that sits in an employee manual that nobody ever looks at. It's something that you want to say when somebody asks you at a cocktail party or a, once we start having those again, or at brunch, what's up with your brand? Why is it so cool? And then you've got something on the tip of your tongue that you can say that makes that person go, wow, hopefully tell me more. And from a public relations standpoint, you know, as we're being hired to um, get media coverage, attract the media or, you know, be the brand journalist and attract the, the, the go direct to audience, we need to have visuals and we need to have messaging that's in place that's going to be speaking to that audience and that we can take and then turn them and, you know, do some storytelling. So I, I just think like, you know, a lot of brands undervalue or don't, don't even know, you know, that this is something that should be part of the, the checklist um, from a public relations standpoint. From, yeah, from, I mean, once it's sort of like, I wonder if they don't think it's important or if they just don't think it's possible. So if I make a product and I'm not the first one to make it, there's another, there are some other competitors that are similar. Do I, as the brand, start to think, well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. 
um, my best my best option is to seem good enough compared to this competitor and then offer the consumer a deal or you know another reason to to buy my product over this one and what I think is it's sort of like uh, it, it's sort of like pushing a, a heavy sled across concrete it's like Every day, you've got to start to try to figure out new ways to sort of like one up your competition. Whereas if you spend a little bit of time and a little bit of money working with somebody like me, don't, you know, hire me, hire somebody else that knows how to do this too. Um, coming up with that thing that is a higher order emotional benefit for the consumer. Because then once you've got that thing that sits at the top of your communication hierarchy, you can hand it to everybody. Your PR right. agency gets to have that and they buy in on that and they start to tell that story in the appropriate way for the publication that they're pitching uh, and the problem that those readers have. And it's easy all of a sudden. Making ads is easy. Uh, making making uh, stories is easy. And right. you're saying something that you can probably trademark. Uh, your competitor, once you say it, they are not going to say it. They, they see and they know that people will see that as copycatting. You've got your own, you've got your white space. And, yeah. and I, I think that, um, you know, also if you find the, the, the right messaging, your competitors really can't say it if it's only about you. Right. Right. And I, and and I guarantee that if, you're a, if you have a good product or a good service, and you have good people that are passionate about making it better all the time and doing a good job of delivering it and all those sort of like blocking and tackling kinds of things, there is a point of difference that you can find that is beyond function. A lot of times it, it, it ties to function, like using the Naked Juice story, I started working with them when they were still a Southern California brand only. Okay. And Odwalla was the brand that was in all the coolers in all the markets across the country. And Naked wanted to be alongside Odwalla and take 50% of the market share. And we started with a functional point of difference. Odwalla added sugar and or preservatives to half of their SKUs. Naked, we used to say, uh, we had a headline that I wrote, which was, um, all we add is a bottle and a lid. I love that. So, yeah. so that's Naked the did not add anything. And so that, but the tag, but, but that's kind of lame just to go out with that kind of a functional point of difference. So we, we created, I wrote a tagline. It's one of my favorites still, which was naked, nothing to hide. And so, yes, it was about the brand and the product itself having nothing to hide. We'll tell you what's in our, what, we won't cover it up. We don't have any reason to. And but three to four words, you did it. Yeah, it, it was it was good, but it but only I think because it also laddered up to the consumer. Like you're paying three fifty for a bottle of juice, right? You're a person who's healthy, and so we said, hey, expose your healthy side. Don't don't listen to what the world says about about what you should eat and what you should drink. Make your own decisions. You've got nothing to hide, and so then it became about the product, came about the consumer. And it was something that Odwalla could never touch. And, and Naked, 18 months later, sold to Pepsi for, I don't know how much, but they did well. Yes, yes. And you were part of that journey, part of that success story. I love that. Yeah, I was happy. Um, I'm proud. We know each other through the mastermind Baby Bathwater, where right. we are surrounded by very successful entrepreneurs of all stages of their, their you know, some, some of them are on their third and fourth 
stint of success. Um, but yeah. I think it's interesting to talk about um, making sure that the founder story or the founder is involved and the vision of, of creating that brand story. And can you talk about maybe some tips or examples of you know founders being involved? Yeah, uh, I call the founder the visionary. Like before I start my process, I send every I send the people that I'm going to be working with um, a list of what I call founders questions. There's seven of them, and the very first one was take yourself back in time to that that moment that you thought this has to exist, this product, this service, this whatever has to exist, and I call it the spark of inspiration. Um, not a terribly ownable term, but it's like, you know, you can remember where you were when certain big historical things happen. I believe that the founder can remember where she or he was when, when they had that moment. And I want you to tell me about how that felt. What were the, what were the emotions that you went through? Just give me as, as paint me a picture. And it, and that picture that they paint helps to position the brand because nobody else has got that picture. No matter how many competitors you have, nobody else has that picture. And that for me is the vision. I mean, that's the beginning of the vision. So I think what a lot of brands do is they get real successful and the person who had that spark of inspiration is further and further removed from the day to day. Maybe because they want to be, maybe because they're tired, maybe because they, you know, they want to start another company. Um, but I argue that the further the team, the day-to-day -day team gets from that visionary, that's when brands drift. That's when things start to happen, like, well, happened to Domino's Pizza, right? And then they came, they had to come back around a couple of years ago and apologize for the fact that their pizza was shitty. And it was a brilliant ad campaign. And they said, we're sorry. Uh, we've let it slide and now we're going to get it back. How uh, do you, how can you tell when you get to that point when, you you know, for example, whether it's dominoes, like they realized they needed to do, you know, make some sort of a pivot because of whatever, or yeah. if you just need to have a brand refresh, like how do you know that it's time or what are some indications? Is, is when you're not excited time? about what you're saying. If you're not excited about every ad that you put out and every and you and you start to see competitors will start to creep up and they will start to take little bits of your language and um, they'll start to copycat you uh, if they can offer the product for, or the service for less or they have more points of distribution or whatever. So as soon as that stuff starts to not feel authentic anymore to that founder. You want to be able to have a meeting with the founder once a year where you show the founder, if the founder is out of the business, let's say, you want to be able to show that person what you've been up to. And you shouldn't, you should be afraid of what they're going to say. Because they might say, what are you doing to my company? You know what I mean? And it's not because somebody is bad or they're, you know, they have a malicious intent. It's just they aren't that person. And you got to figure out ways to stay close to that person. I'm lucky. The brands that I work with are smaller. And so I can I work with a lot of brands that are like 10, 15 people deep, which means I can have that founder on the call. Have that access. Yes, that's great. It's so important to be able to, to have that direct access. I, I totally agree. You know, looking at the past year of 2020, and um, one of the things that I'm seeing that's very important as we head into 2021 for, for brands, whether you're B2B or B2C, is just the trust component of, you know, 
branding trust and authenticity. And that's really, if you can do that, you've um, overcome a lot of the marketing and sales expenses. So from a branding standpoint, what are some tips or examples of, of branding and, and, and trust? Well, for me, even before 2020, the, what you're really looking for that's the magic is this intersection. Can you see my X? Between the greatness of the brand and, and the real true desires and needs of the consumer. So if you can find that intersection, then you're not really, you don't have to sell. Mm -hmm. You really just have to show. And the consumer will buy in. They'll self-select in or out based on what they see. Uh, what's happened now, I mean, you can, you can almost chart it like a graph. In the very beginning, back in March, uh, I saw at least in my social feed, there was all this you know, outpouring of sort of like support for each other and love mm -hmm. and like, oh my God, we've never been through this as a human group together. We'll get through this. And a lot of brands did dumb commercials. Like I saw a dumb Home Depot commercial, sorry, Home Depot, that said, we're all in this together, brought to you by the Home Depot. It was like, what are you talking about? I mean, it's, it, they just, they, they, they would just shove this idea of togetherness with their normal message and think that people would, would like it. Well, now, uh, based on, you know, the other big events that we've had, like uh, the protests that we've had over, over equality and uh, the election. Now we're sort of like coming into a different part where I just, I think a lot of people are acting angry, but I think most people are angry because they're afraid. It's gone on for a really long time. It's had a lot of time to develop these various possibilities of what's really going on. And people have gotten freaked out. So it's even more important now than ever for brands to think about, okay, who is my consumer? Who's my core? What are they worried about right now? I make a list in my workshop. What are our consumers' tensions? Like the okay. best product, the best brand relieves a number of tensions in its target consumer. And some of them are, you know, some of them are closer to the ground and some of them are, are higher up, sort of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, you got to just put your hat on and get into those people's shoes, to use another metaphor, and figure out how are they feeling right now and how can my brand help them? I mean, it seems really sort of, it can seem really dorky and altruistic and woo-woo, but really at the end of the day, if, if you're not in business to help people, then what are you doing? Right. Yeah. What is your take on, you know, some brands are afraid to even acknowledge COVID and their messaging or marketing or, or public relations. They, you know, just want to kind of separate themselves from the pandemic, um, you know, and, and a lot of these other things that have happened the past year that you mentioned. And, you know, some of them are understandable, but um, the COVID pandemic, there's a couple, you know, schools of thought out there. I just read something in Ad Age that um, studies are showing that consumers, whether it's B2B or B2C, that they find it, that the word wasn't refreshing, but they find it, you know, welcoming that that the pandemic is being acknowledged and as part of the messaging. I think so. I think we've never been through anything like this, except for like the 95 year olds among us. Right. I mean, we, yeah. we, we haven't had a world war in this, in a, in a number of generations. And even that, you know, there are a lot of people that were removed from that. If it wasn't happening on your geography, 
or topo topography, you were removed from it to a certain extent. This has affected every single person on the planet in, in some way, shape or form. And so I think it's a real opportunity for brands to be honest with people and say, um, and you don't have to be like, you don't have to be maudlin, you know? Um, I remember the first episode of Saturday Night Live after 9-11 and Lauren Michaels came on after the, they had uh, Paul Simon sang The Boxer, which was an amazing song for that. And it was very, you know, it felt, you know, it felt really good. And Lauren Michaels came on and, and asked the host, I can't remember who the host was, but he said, um, can we be funny? And the host said, you know, why start now? You know, they made a joke <laughs> out of it. And yeah, so yeah. It, was a, it was a huge relief to watch that show and to see this institution come back and acknowledge the tragedy, but do so in a way that was true to their brand. Right, their brand that's a great example. Humor. Yeah, I so love that. Make it about your brand. And so if you're a funny brand, make it, make it funny. We can we we still should be able to find the humor in crappy situations because that's what keeps you sane. I think. Agreed. Agreed. What are just some basic branding tips that you can offer our audience if you're rebranding or just starting your business? Um, what are just some things that, in your opinion, are just like do's and don'ts? Say you a lot more than you say we. Uh, there's a great book that people might enjoy called The Persuasion Code. And it's written by this French guy, so I can't pronounce his name. We had a, we had a, a, a Zoom call with him uh, through Baby Bathwater, and it was amazing. But he's a guy that studied the primal brain, the sort of like the subconscious, the part of the brain that isn't the prefrontal cortex. And his argument is that part of the brain is what makes most purchasing decisions. So he's trying to teach marketers how to speak to that primal brain. And he said a couple of things that are really important uh, that stuck out to me. And the first one is the primal brain is selfish. And if you think about the fact that it, that it originated at a time when we had to worry about our survival every single minute of every single day, um, that makes sense. So if you start talking about, we did this and we created this, your primal brain's like, later, I'm out. But if you start your copy off with, we know what's important to you just something that simple. Mm -hmm. um, so go through, I would, I would tell everybody that's watching that has a brand, go through your website right now okay. and look at the number of times that you use we versus you. It's okay to say we, it's just gotta be connected to you. And I think that is the number one thing that, that. that you could do that would improve your brand without ever having to talk to a guy like me. And then, and then beyond that, it's like, always look for truth. What is the truth of your brand? If, if, if your brand is just out to knock the number two competitor off their pedestal and you can connect that to a you, do it, say it, right? Like don't, don't hide your true aspirations. Don't, don't hide. And, and, that, and that leads to sort of like maybe the third thing, which is um, I don't think brands should be afraid of being vulnerable. I don't think that brands should be like, like if, you, um, if you've ever heard of like the sales letter, which is a direct marketing, long mm -hmm. copy, there's, there's something in the sales letter. Every good sales letter has a damaging admission. And it's essentially a few sentences that, that almost disqualify the brand or dissuade the consumer from buying 
whatever it is that's being offered. It's like I always wondered who writes these things. <laughs> the sales. Oh, I know. Like, I, I, it's it's a skill for for sure. Yeah. And um, the best people that write them do do incredibly well. But there's but the, but the damaging admission for me is a, is a a time honored thing in direct marketing, right? A, a, a style of marketing that's designed to get the most conversion possible. That says that being vulnerable is is a really valuable trait. When when all of consumer hears is how amazing you are, and there's no there there's no chinks in your armor. Uh, how hard is that to believe? It's actually harder to believe than if you said, you know, you you might not like what we have to say about this. But yeah, I, I screwed up a couple times in the past, and here's what happened. Here is my biggest fail. They, the Domino's Pizza example. We're back to that. I mean, they basically yeah. said, "We're sorry." You know, we screwed up and their sales turned and, and they did great. I think I just read, they just came out with like a macaroni and cheese pizza or something. It's like carb on top of carb. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you know, there it, it pizza, people love pizza. Yeah. It's the one food that most people would, would eat if they could only eat one food. <laughs> uh, do you have any design tips, branding design tips? You mean like graphic design? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love create the language first and then let the graphic design uh, echo and fit with the tone that you have decided on. Uh, a lot, there's lots of different styles of graphic design and they all can look great, but they don't all fit your brand. So decide, uh, do a tone exercise, you know, say we are, we are, we are what? We are strong. We are, uh, passionate. We are advocates. We are, you know, any, you know, and, and things that you could work into tone in your language mm -hmm. and then apply those same tonal ad words, ad uh, attributes to your graphic design. Almost like mantras. They're your mantras. Yeah. And, and get your, get your graphic designer and your copywriter working together. Don't yes, let, don't that. let the silo happen. So that I think is the best way to get good graphic design because it, it's good if it if it fits. It can be pretty and beautiful and strong and powerful and not fit and therefore it's not good. That Eric, makes this has been yes, I just I could talk about this all night. Um, but <laughs> I, I want I would love to get a couple things if you could you named a couple books. if there's any other sources or favorite books that you think brands should could should check out if you could make those recommendations. Sure, you got to read the persuasion code. It's really amazing. Um, you've got to read, and I can't remember the subtitle, but, um, I, and I'm wondering if I can even remember, what's that thing where you turn straw into gold? Alchemy. Alchemy is a book that's written by, is written by a, a British dude who runs Ogilvy One, which is, you know, anybody that's been around a little while knows who David Ogilvy was. He founded Ogilvy and Mather, and then it's become all these other Ogilvy's. His book is really amazing, especially the section on costly signaling. Okay. Check okay. out if you can't read anything else in that book. It's called Alchemy: The Dark Art of Something. Okay, um, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, great book, and uh, that's all that I've got for right now. Okay, and tell us where can if somebody's interested in hiring you for a sure. branding exercise. Um, what you can would... check. You can check me out on LinkedIn, where I'm just Eric Kiker. E-R-I-C-K-I-K-E-R, two words. Um, I've got a lot of posts and videos and advice and tips and lots of mouthing off. And then if you just want to shoot me a note, it's Eric with a C 
at thedigestiblebrand.com. Okay. Well, we'll also put that in the show notes. Eric, it has been awesome. (laughs) I loved hearing all these tips and I love all your branding stories and examples. And I think I'm going to ask you to come back again and talk about other branding strategies if you're up for it. You bet. I love it. I love talking and I I love talking to you. So thanks, Lisa. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, everybody, you can also check out the show notes for all of um, Eric's um, tips and social PR secrets, and we'll catch up with you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social PR Secrets. If you like what you heard, check out the book on Amazon or follow our blog at socialprsecrets.com. This episode was sponsored by The Buyer Group, a social PR agency striving to keep our balance in the digital world, practicing public relations, social media, and search marketing, while occasionally drinking a glass of wine or two for the best creativity and results. Thank you all for tuning in. If you would like to get a free chapter of Social PR Secrets, go to socialprsecrets.com slash free.